Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, great mentor, all-around uh, wonderful Agilist, Mr. Don Gray. Don, how are you tonight? Uh, doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be back. I've, I've been missing you. <laughs> I've been missing you too, Don. Our time in, in Atlanta was too short. Uh, it was, it was. For those who weren't there, that was the Agile 2016 conference, a... Fun time. Ryan packed the room <laughs> and wowed with his presentation on better, faster, cheaper. Well, thank you. It was fun. And uh, yeah, I was uh, very over overwhelmed and, and humbled at the same time by the, uh, the reception of that talk. It's actually up online if people want to watch it. So if you're an Agile Alliance member, it's available. We'll get a link out to it. Uh, you know, most people don't realize, Don, that uh, just how much you do uh, in the community, especially around that conference. I think this year you were track chair for the, the leadership track. And yes. In, and in past years, I know that you, you've played a key role. You know, I, I think we've had you on a number of times, but I don't know if we've actually gone through just some of the things that you, you've done out in the community over the years. Maybe it's worth a few minutes just to, to brag about you for a little bit. We're already into shameless plugs. Is no, this the end no, of no. the recording already? No, I, 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 what, I, what I think most people don't realize is, um, and correct me where I'm telling lies about you. I mean, if you they're were, good lies, just keep talking. <laughs> Always. But uh, I think uh, you were involved in one of the largest Agile transformations ever attempted out at uh, Capital One. I know that you played a key role in that. Uh, it was a very large transformation. Very I, large. I understand it's still in process, but transformations, people go, oh, I'll get there and I'm done. <laughs> transformations are like mastery. It's a journey, not a destination. You right. never get there. 
Right. I, I So definitely a lot of uh, involvement in that. Uh, you're a published author. You've co-written many books with the likes of Jerry Weinberg, Joanna Rothman, Esther Derby. Uh, you're a sought-after trainer. You do the, the Coaching Beyond the Team uh, course with Esther Derby. I think you've got one coming up here in September. September the 13th and 14th in Costa Mesa, California. I think you've got one seat left for that, but uh, you know, definitely a lot of involvement there uh, and just a lot of mentorship. I know you work with a lot of uh, coaches like me and a bunch of others throughout the community, just quietly behind the scenes, and you probably don't get a lot of credit for that, but you're a huge influence on a lot of people there too. So just want to make sure you've been on the show a lot and I know people know your name, but I uh, just wanted them to, uh, to hear some of the great things that you do out there. So, uh, one of the things uh, that I think definitely influenced my current location in space-time was the opportunity to be part of the AYE conference. For 13 years, from 2000 to 2012, many of the people you've just mentioned, Jerry Weinberg, Esther Derby, Johanna Rothman, myself, Steve Smith, and others came and went over the years, but we were sort of the core that started and then finished. We had this opportunity to shift conferences. Uh, the history behind it, a lot of people don't know that the way the conference started, a bunch of us were complaining about how, con- this would have been like 1999, we were complaining about conferences because back then they were talking head sessions. You came in, you sat down in rows, somebody got up and spoke for 45 minutes, took 15 minutes of questions, everybody stood up, walked out, and then wait 15 minutes, the next group of people walk in, sit down in rows, somebody else stands up in the front. We found it highly unsatisfying. And Jerry, bless his heart, said, well, if you had a conference, what would it look like? And we said, well, it would be all experiential, longer sessions. So we were doing three-hour sessions at the AYE conference so that we could actually deep dive into the material as, and, and people could experience. So Piaget's learning model goes exploration, invention, and application. So you explore a space and you see what's going on. You, you do some sort of an activity that works in the area, and it's analogous to what you do at work. Then you have a debrief period where you go, okay, what happened? How are we learning? How does this apply to what we're doing in our careers, our work, our profession? And then you do another iteration where you apply those learnings. That's the application. So uh, exploration, invention, and application. There was none of that happening when I went back in 99, 2000. Uh, So I don't know that we get all the credit, but we said we want to do a conference where we do this, and we wanted to keep it small. The conference was limited to 75 people. We would have a starting day of what we called the tutorial, where we would introduce certain models that were common to a lot of the sessions. The Satir interaction model, the Satir change model, personality type, congruence, these sorts of concepts. We'd do that on Sunday. Then we'd have three days of conference, and then we'd have a fourth day on Thursday, actually fifth day if you came to Sunday. And on Thursday at lunch, I would still be meeting people I had not met. And we only had 75 people there. So that's how intense it could get. So I've sort of leveraged off that. Uh, 2008 was the first Agile Coach Camp up in Detroit. I co, actually I 
set up and ran the 2010 in Raleigh, and then I've been back two or three times to the various coach camps, which is where I actually met you was in Indianapolis at a coach camp. So I'm involved in the coaching community, I'm, I, and I'm still active as a coach. Coach is, unfortunately, a highly overloaded term. Uh, actually, I dabble more in org dev and management, because when you start to talk transformation, agile transformation, it's sort of a pig and a poke. We're talking this nice, fuzzy, fluffy, ride unicorns along the rainbow transformation thing. In actuality, we're dealing with the nuts and bolts of organizational development. And that requires a certain grounding in the fundamentals of change, problem solving, systems thinking, networking, influence, rapport, um, and a whole bunch of these things that some coaches may or may not have the capability and capacity to deal with or the experience. Well, and that's one of the, you know, I'm glad you mentioned coach camp because that's one of the the big eye openers that I think attending a coach camp and the type of conferences that that you and, and some of the others set up is that like when I showed up in Indianapolis, I, I have a very good foundation in Scrum. And I think I understand Scrum very well. I think I understand the manifesto very well. But when I'm sitting down talking to you and George Dinwiddie and Esther Derby, and, and by the way, you know, at a coach camp, you get access to all of you guys, which is amazing. But you start talking about, well, what model do you, do you use to try to align people? Or what model are what decision making model are you putting in place to help these people navigate this new mindset? And it's just it's a panic moment. It's a moment of I don't know how to coach people. I know how to teach or train Scrum, and there and there's a huge difference there. And I think that's part of a. I needed to have that learning because then I was able to dedicate a lot of time around trying to fill that gap. But I think you know when you say the term coach is overloaded. Uh, I think that's part of the gap. It's that I think there's a lot of people out there that have put in the time to understand frameworks very well. But when it comes to uh, understanding people, understanding meeting their needs, understanding when their needs aren't being met, but nothing's being said, you know, all of those cues that, that you guys are really good at picking out and finding and then applying models and, and, you know, the psychology behind it. I think there's a huge gap there that, uh, you know, that many of us have a, a ton of work to do. Well, and once again, it's a, it's a, des- it's a journey, not a destination. Um, it, this happens to be the anniversary month of my entry into the workplace 32 years ago. While I think software development per se has not changed that much, uh, we're still facing a lot of the same challenges, victories, that have always been with us. There's been a shift. Well, if if sixteen, if fifteen years is recent, there's been a recent shift. And the first one I'm thinking of is the Agile Manifesto, which said, you know, we we do these things as software developers, and they are necessary. Uh, we process and tools are necessary. Documentation is necessary. Plans are necessary. But there are some things that are more important. If you get in a situation where things, where, where your plans and where, where your processes and tools aren't working quite the way you want to, go to people and interaction. So the, I think that was sort of a tectonic shift in 
how we start to view the art of software development. I'd like to say science, but I'm not sure we're there yet, and I'm sure it's not engineering. But I think there's some art to it. Right. Because some people, if you think back to um, like the guild system, uh, where you have the apprentices, journeymen, and masters, I, I think that's a model that applies quite well to software development. We have uh, a, a bunch of apprentices. We've got a, a handful of journeymen and just a few masters. And I think that's sort of the people who went, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this. Now, we couple that from an organizational standpoint with uh, human systems dynamics, the work of Glenda Yang. Uh, where we talk about containers, differences, exchanges, boundaries, and all of the models that are inherent in the human systems dynamics domain. Now we have some levers that we can use to try and shift behavior and patterns in time. That's a step forward in then most recently the work of Dave Snowden in Kinevin uh, with ordered systems and unordered systems and trying to understand in which domain you are sitting uh, or your problem is located, and then the various processes, methods, and things you can do to try and enhance your position within that area. In some cases, you might try to solve the problem, uh, such as the simple domain or the obvious domain, which is what he calls it now. In the complex domain, you're managing a mess. How can I make this mess a little less messy? How can I manage it a little bit better? How can we move the system in a more beneficial direction? So there's sort of a handful of things. And I did leave out that there's, there's a lot, there are a lot of things that are happening in an engineering space for software. Uh, we now have continuous integration. We have... Um, test runners, we have static code analyzers. There are a lot of things. So while I kind of poo-pooed software engineering a minute ago, I, I'm going to step back from that just a little bit because there have been significant advances in that space also. People are still amazed when software ships, and that always seems odd to me. <laughs> Even with the advances we've made, there's, there's still this little moment of, oh, wow, did we actually send that to Prod and it worked? Perhaps that's the implicit understanding of two things. One, the complexity of what we just created. Right. And the wow of it actually worked. <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of... So that's one reason why I've always enjoyed software development. Uh, and in fact, I'm just now starting to get back into it. It's like Christmas. Every time you build a system, run it, and it works, and it does what it should do, and it works the way you wanted it to, it's like, wow, it's a present. I love this. You know, it, it's interesting because it is such an art. And, I, and I fall in your camp where I don't believe it's an engineering practice as of yet. yet. Uh, as, as of, of yet. yet. We're, we're, we're getting better. I totally agree, but I don't think it's there. I think when it gets there, that's when the machines will write their own code, you know? So I, I worry about that a little bit. But um, mm, I'm, not, I'm not sure we can do that because somebody has to tell the machine what we want. So there's a basic concept in systems that most failures happen at system boundaries. So back when we used to have like the UI, the uh, middleware, and the database, 
and we did the waterfall projects and everybody would agree to this is the interface between the UI and the middleware, this is the interface between the middleware and the database or the persistent stuff. That's where the problems always existed. Right. And when you think about teams and teamwork, where do most of the problems happen? The interfaces between the people. It's always at the boundaries. It's at the boundaries and, and between systems. What I think would happen is if we actually did become an engineering discipline, which means we would study our failures, we would analyze them, we would figure out how not to do that again, what we would end up doing is building more robust subsystems and components so that we could put them together in more interesting and fascinating ways uh, quicker. So that's, that's what engineering, uh, so I, I have an engineering background and you know, you don't, in a, in a manufacturing environment, you don't build your own thermocouple. You go to a catalog, you look up and say, I, that's the one I need. It has to be a type K because it has to go to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I need it so that it's a, ungrounded so I don't create circulating ground loops in my instrumentation. There's, there, there's a body of knowledge behind that. I think someday we'll get there and what we'll end up with is programmers might become more like I want to say Lego players because I love Legos because I'm going to take this Lego block and I'm going to take that Lego block. I'm going to smack them together and watch what comes out, except we'll be dealing with hundreds and thousands of Lego blocks. Yeah, the components as opposed to uh, programs. And I think that's when things become Source lines of source code. Right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like mashups. It's can you take this this concept and mash it with that concept and then move forward. And I think things get really interesting. That's the internet of things, in my opinion. That's where those kind of, those kind of concepts start playing. And, and maybe we're entering that a little early. I think that is a space where they're going to start. You're going to start seeing solutions like that come out. Well, I don't know if we're entering it early or not, but here we come. Oh yeah. But we are stuck in, and it's not even stuck because I, I I find this, why I stay in this space. You know what what's interesting is we're all we're all capable people. There's many different things we could probably do, and I think what keeps us lured to software development is the fact that it's still kind of an unknown quantity. Well, and it's, it's also creative, right? Um, so back in the days of CompuServe and. Some of you are maybe old enough to remember CompuServe. Hold on, Don. For those listeners who were uh, born well after you and I, would you tell them what CompuServe was? Uh, <laughs> CompuServe was an interesting collection. So it was an online service, uh, basically driven by PDP-10s, for those of you who are old enough to remember PDP. <laughs> this conversation is starting to have an awful lot of if you're old enough to remember. All right, so, for the kids but, out there, this is a, it's the old message board systems. Google ate all of this up. It's now Google Groups, but um, uh, is that so fair? To be, now, now, to be more correct, okay. uh, AOL bought CompuServe and then slowly strangled it. Okay. But, but it's, it's very similar to Google Groups. That is correct. Right. Um, and there was this one particular group I was a part of called the League of, Inter League of Engineering Automation Professional Professionals. And one time I asked to pose the question, what did we do before we had computers and automation? And one guy wrote back and said, we wrote symphonies. Because if you think about it, orchestrating rhythms and the cadences and the notes and the different instruments and involving them and 
building them up and to a crescendo and then back down to a pian- pianissimo is a lot like writing a program. It's, and it's pure mind stuff. And every program is similar to and different from every other program you've ever written. And it's a fascinating, fascinating place to be. And that's why I still consider myself a developer, although I just now after many years starting to go, hey, wait a minute, I need to get a Raspberry Pi and start learning Python. So we're talking to Don Gray on this episode of Agile for Humans. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more about what uh, the computing world was like before there was electricity. Um, how <laughs> we those... called that, that, that was called an abacus. An abacus, yes. We'll get into that. Plus a few more questions on coaching and some of the other things that uh, Don's looking at right now. So we'll be back in a few. Uh, stay with us. Agile Dev East is the premier industry event covering the latest techniques and topics in the Agile universe. Learn both foundational knowledge and new methodologies to develop skills, supercharge knowledge, and re-energize your career growth. This year's event will take place November 13th through the 18th in Orlando, Florida. As an added bonus, the event is co-located with Better Software and DevOps East conferences. Your one registration automatically gives you access to all three programs. This means you can choose from over 100 learning and networking opportunities to build a customized week of learning that fits you and your organization's specific needs. Explore the program at adceast.techwell.com. Agile for Humans listeners use code AFH16 to receive $200 off their conference registration fees. Register by the September 16th super early bird deadline for combined savings of up to $600 off at adceast.techwell.com. We're back with Don Gray. He uh, he stuck around through the break. I'm very happy he decided to stay with us. Don, it was tight. It was close there, but I'm glad you came it was, back. It was nip and tuck. Nip and tuck. <laughs> very good. So, Don, we've talked about uh, this whole agile thing and more broadly software development being an art. And I think one of the hardest things as a coach, and one of the things that you know that that I've been focusing on as I've made this transition from. Uh, a career that's based on on basically corporate management more into agile coaching is knowing what to do uh, when you don't know what to do because it seems like that situation comes up a lot when you're coaching people and you're and you're trying to fix problems at the boundaries like what we were talking about and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on uh, when it's not clear what to do and I know Kenefin which you brought up a little earlier you know handles some of those 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 conundrums but there are times where there are there's a perfectly simple and yet epically wrong answer to a problem. Uh, I think uh, I, I stole that from someone, but uh, so so there's a guy by the name of Henry Menken right. who is quoted as saying, "For every complex problem, there is a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong." Exactly. And so when we're in that spot. What are the things that you look at? What are the things, where do you go? What's, what's Don's happy place when he doesn't know what to do? And how do you unravel that complete mess? So we need to have a conversation about knowing and learning education and how we were raised. Uh, most of us in this profession were, did, did well in school. Uh, we were we were very good at finding the one right answer. Uh, we we excelled at that. Um, 
we made very strong simplifying assumptions. For example, uh, in engineering, what was it, linear systems two, where we were looked mathematically modeling electronic circuits, we made assumptions. We assumed that the wires had no resistance, the capacitors had no leakage, the inductors worked at 100% efficiency, because if we didn't make those assumptions, the math wouldn't work. The real world isn't like that. So the thing I had to let go of was there is one right answer. There, there are many possible answers. The world is full of possible answers. I have to know all the answers. Uh, you know, I've often said that if I, I can't know everything, but if I know enough people, I can find the answer somewhere. So the happy spot for Don is when I don't know what to do, this would be in the chaotic domain of Kinevin. Do something and see what happens. Now, you want to make small experiments. You want to make small moves. Uh, you want to check often and see what's happening. But I no longer operate under the dilemma or the delusion that I have to have the answer to everything. But I should have an idea where to go, what to consider. And that speaks to a fairly broad background in systems thinking, uh, linguistics. Uh, I mean, let's see, I've got, I've been certified in NLP, MBTI. Uh, I can, you, spent, can you explain some of those acronyms? Oh, okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, so NLP is Neuro Linguistic Programming. While a lot of people think of it as voodoo and magic, there are very useful principles about how we use language. It's based on uh, transformational grammar and several other things. So while it, some people think of it as bad, I find parts of it very useful, especially when it comes to language. Uh, MBTI, Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Everybody, I can't say everybody, but people are going, oh, that's not scientific. There is no such thing as scientific personality. <laughs> personality is a made-up construct. You are a person, and you behave certain ways in certain situations. Um, so my, I, I would encourage coaches to find a personality indicator pattern. Uh, there's the big five. There's personalysis. There's MBTI. There's a bunch of different um, element B. It's um, Fyro uh, B, uh, DISC. There's a bunch of them out there. Find one. Know something about it because it helps you position yourself so that you can better respond to and share information with others. Uh, and we've just lost Don in the conversation. Um, so <laughs> about broad range, systems thinking. Uh, everything is connected. When you push something in one part of a system, something somewhere else is going to move. What we're really doing is, is we're just trying to generate some insights. You know, we're, whether whatever model, whatever test, some people will argue that Myers-Briggs isn't scientific. Who cares? If it generates an insight and if it can start a conversation, you've probably, it's, that's probably most the battle, isn't it? And it's more about understanding me and how I can 
change myself to relate better to others. Right. Um, it's not about fixing you or putting you in, oh, you're an ENFP. That means you believe, behave this way, this way, this way. Well, not really. Uh, I, it helps me understand myself. And if I have an idea how you and I are not communicating, it gives me a way to shift my communication patterns uh, to match yours. One of the things, so long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, I had a business partner who was very quiet. I sort of, as you know, am not quite so quiet. We had to stop paying you by the word just so that uh, we could keep you on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for the check. Anyway, uh, and we were doing a database design. This would have been around 2001, 2002 timeframe. And so I put my thoughts on a whiteboard. I sat down. He got up and he started doing his thoughts on the whiteboard. And I was just like that close to bouncing up and showing him where he was wrong. And then I realized that if I did that, I would derail his entire train of thought and I would lose the opportunity to learn something. I haven't sat on my hands since then. But, <laughs> and I hadn't sat on my hands for a long time before then, but I literally had to sit on my hands and shut up yeah. so that he could finish the stuff that he wanted to share. So that's sort of the value of uh, having multiple models. And I actually have a uh, blog post somewhere on my website about having multiple models because models are like tools. Like It's like you, you open your kitchen drawer and you should have a bunch of different utensils in there that you use for different reasons. Now, if, a, if what I grab out of my, my utensil drawer isn't working, let's say I want to um, stir a pot that's got, uh, I'm, I'm making frosting. I can stir that with a wooden spoon. I can stir that with a silicone spatula. I can use many different tools. But if the one I've grabbed isn't doing what I want, I put it off to the side. I grab one that I think will work a little bit better. So part of knowing what to do when you don't know what to do is to have a bunch of different tools, methods, and models in your problem-solving toolkit. When we go down the path of, of becoming agile coaches or or coaches, uh, I think it is a craft that we, we constantly have to work on and think about. You know, the ideas from so many different uh, disciplines apply. You know, for instance, some of the best coaching experiences I've had where I've been most successful, I pulled completely from a marriage counseling book, you know, trying to get two people to talk and uh, to get some lines of communication back open. I actually cracked open. I, I was failing in so many different ways. I didn't understand the problem. And, and I finally, you know, I looked at a, I was in a bookstore and I flipped through and I found an idea in a marriage counseling book, ended up buying the book. And, and I was able to help two people with a relationship from a from a marriage counseling perspective but it was two co-workers instead of a couple and so it's just it's neat that the tools are everywhere and and we can apply from different domains um are you ready for your book yeah you know how i give you a book every time we talk well, you cost me so much money at uh, at amazon it's ridiculous don't tell me let me guess when i quit giving you books you'll start sending me a check <laughs> you got it you you're spending all your money on my books there you go. Uh, the name of the book is On Becoming a Counselor. Uh, I, learned, I learned about the book from Jerry Weinberg. 
And it's back to Jerry and the secrets of consulting. And the secrets of consulting, he says, no matter what they tell you, it's always a people problem. And so when I was talking about the AYE conference, I ripped off a bunch of models from Virginia Satir, whose background was family therapy. And it's, it's I don't know if it's amazing. I, I could be sad. Uh, but dysfunctional teams behave a lot like dysfunctional families. So the models and methods that we would use, the systemic, systemic uh, tools we use in family counseling, family therapy, would apply to the same dysfunction in organizations. So when I talked about pulling from a marriage counseling book, I'll be more specific. Uh, the book is Love and Respect by uh, Emerson Egret. And what he has is a story. And it's a story about a couple, and it's a husband and a wife. And they're sitting there listening to his advice about taking the step to uh, speak more respectfully, speak more lovingly uh, towards their partner. And I, I think it was the husband who said, well, who should go first? And uh, his answer was, whoever has the, the desire, the maturity, and the uh, the will to do so. And I thought, what a powerful statement. And of course, it's modified in the workplace. But uh, just taking that piece of advice and turning that back to towards people and saying, well, whoever whoever wants to get through this issue the soonest or whoever's willing to uh, to be the bigger person, you know, however you turn it, it, it had a profound effect and made someone move forward. And I think it's an interesting example of uh, how you can how you can apply things uh, outside of our, our practice, you know, multiple, like you said, multiple domains, because it is all people. It's all people problems, right? It's all, uh, it's Pretty all rooted. Much. It's rooted in relationships. And, and you know what the beauty of that is? That very same weakness, it's a people problem, is also the strength that allows us to create the fantastic value that software developers create. It's, it's, you know, it's the old Zen thing. Your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Another book, Communication Gaps and How to Close Them by Naomi Carton. Uh, you mentioned something about having to translate slightly from, you know, a marriage counseling, marriage therapy book into the business place. Uh, Naomi Carton in Communication Gaps takes a lot of the satire models and translates them into workplace conversations so that you don't sound like a therapist. Yeah, so Don, it sounds like, you know, as we as we get to our, our time box for this episode, that, you know, we've gone through, so I think, some interesting topics that show just how difficult it truly is to coach people uh, in general, but also when they're developing software. And for the for that that person out there who's perhaps newer to the coaching field, for that person who is looking to take that journey and, and is passionate about eventually doing some of the the things that I think we're we're, we're privileged and to be able to do, such as I think it's a true honor to be in a position to coach other people and and to help them uh, try to try to deliver great software. But to those people who really want to take that on, you know, where do they start? What do you think they ought to? Uh, whether it's a book, a class, um, reaching out to to mentors, what do you think 
they can do to help them become the best uh, coach that they can be to the teams that they'll eventually be assigned to? So there's a uh, couple of things. There's there's no lack of coaching opportunities for classes. Uh, of course, there's the Agile Coaching Institute, uh, Lisa Adkins and Michael Spade. Uh, they do a, a lot of work in this space, uh, helping new coaches or people who want to become coach start to frame their uh, career, and that's good. I, I, I actually sort of backed into coaching. I've never really had that struck. I did not have a structured start to the, oh, I am going to be a coach now. Let me pursue these things. Right. Um, there's another thing. Another group called ORSC, Organizational and Relationship Systemic Coaching, something like that, ORSC. Uh, you can Google that and they'll come back with uh, some thoughts. Some of the coaches I'm currently working with are going through their certification program. I, I, I've not been through it, but I've heard good things about it. Uh, and these are way places to get started. Uh, coaching beyond the team is not... You, I, I, I wouldn't say it's not useful, but Esther and I got together and looked at the things we've been challenged with, the tools, the methods, and the models that we use when we do coaching and work with clients. And we put together these based on the fact that, one, you will probably come in a, into the organization at the inappropriate level to work with the people you really need to work with. So you have to find ways to connect with them and influence them. You have to find ways to share data, diagram the problem, show how it impacts them, uh, and provide options. So coaching beyond the team is probably more suited to somebody who's been coaching multiple teams in possibly different locations. The, those, those coaches who have found that they're being limited in their effectiveness uh, because they cannot transcend these boundaries that were created when they either, in my case, as an independent, negotiated the original contract, or as an internal coach, you get sent to go fix somebody. Uh, that's I'm, Fixing people is not in my... I, you can't do that. All you're going to do is waste your time, s waste money, and really aggravate the people you've been sent to fix. Very good. Well, Don, at this point, normally I let you do some plugs, but I actually, I, th I thought some rapid fire uh, questions would be a little more fun. Is this a list of stuff? Could be. Let's try. Let's try. All right. I, I, I did get to the shameless plug for coaching beyond the team. Yeah. September 13th and 14th in Costa Mesa, one seat left. Uh, coachingbeyondtheteam.com has a link to the Eventbrite page. And we'll, Rapid uh, fire. Here we go. We'll get, a, we'll get a link in the show notes to that. So, Don, what are you currently reading right now? I am reading uh, The Art of Problems. I am rereading The Art of Problem Solving by Russell Acoff, and I have Are Your Lights On stuck up behind that next in queue. Very good. Expectations, hopes, and reality. What's the difference and why? Expectation is something I expect to have happen, good, bad, or otherwise. Hope has a positive 
note to it. I, I can hope something will happen. Uh, the reality is based on how much I work to achieve the hope. Most oversighted book or, or topic during uh, Agile 2016? Turn the ship around. How, how did you come to be here, Don? Uh, what a long, strange trip it's been. How do you feel about that? It, I'm, I'm, I'm grooving on it. Now, for those of you who weren't around when grooving was an actual thing, <laughs> uh, it's a great time to be alive. I'm incredibly fascinated with where I am and what I'm doing. Well, and I'm, I'm very appreciative that you share that fascination with us. So, Don, this has been uh, just a fun talk, and I'm glad we got to do this. I hope we get to do this again because... Uh, too, because we, don't have, we, we didn't answer, go through half of that stuff I sent you. I know. We, it's just more for next time. But at this point, we're going to cut this one off. I'd like to give a big thanks to the listeners. Really appreciate all the downloads. They keep going up. You guys are definitely sharing podcasts with your friends and, and coworkers. Really appreciate that. And I hope you guys take a moment and check out the links to the TechWell conference. It really is reminiscent of many of the things that Don was talking about when he was telling us about AYE. You know, the observation that we need more uh, hands-on content, more a uh, workshop type setting, more experiential. And, and it really does have that. I'm doing a half-day workshop on... Uh, on Scrum and what to do after the two-day sessions are over and, and you, you get into the real world and, and uh, some of the problems start popping up. There's a ton of other workshops and tutorials and, and great sessions there that I think really, they really uh, fulfill some of those needs that, that have been noted throughout the community for more experiential and, and more hands-on type sessions. So really hope you guys check that out. Uh, use the code AFH. 16 that should get you $200 off of your uh, your entry fee. Uh, really great event. I love speaking at it. I'm looking forward to going out there and I hope I see as many of the listeners out there as possible. So with that said, thank you as always for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and have a great night. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and scrum on.